read for you a passage from a book I came across a couple years ago. It's called The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. Dawkins says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent, a bully. Those of us schooled from infancy in his ways can become desensitized to their horror. I remember the first time I had a real crisis of faith. I was a freshman in college down at Bethel College, and one of my uh, theology professors was debating uh, an atheist down at the University of Minnesota. And so uh, myself and some of my buddies from my dorm room, we decided to go and support our professor and check out the debate. And we went down, and uh, as we entered into the lecture hall, there were a group of students out in the hallway from the Student Atheist Association there at the University of Minnesota. And they were passing out tracts, but these weren't gospel tracts, these were atheist tracts. And I remember I was handed, as an 18-year-old freshman in college, I was, a handed, I was handed a tract with the title on the front, The God of the Old Testament is a Moral Monster. And I looked at that and I said, what is this all about? And I started flipping through the pages, and page after page were stories from the Bible, Quotes from the Bible with graphic cartoon illustrations of people being killed and slaughtered. And the first page, it was Genesis chapter 6 and the flood of Noah and pictures of people drowning in horror in the great flood. In Genesis 19, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and pictures of God raining down fire and brimstone upon those cities. I turned the page and we came and saw Exodus chapter 11, the angel of the Lord killing all the firstborn sons in the plagues of Egypt. I turned the page again and they depicted scenes from the conquest of the promised land recorded in Joshua's chapter, Joshua chapters 1 through 12 where God had ordered the Israelites to go and take the promised land and in many cases completely destroy entire cities and peoples. And then I came to a passage that really struck me, a passage that I had never seen before in the Bible, a passage that I had never considered. It was 1 Samuel 15, 2-3, where God commands King Saul to kill the Amalekites. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up out of Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. And then on the bottom of this page in this atheistic track, there was a big, bold statement. What kind of God would order a command like this? Now, how do we make sense of passages like these? How can God condone or participate in this kind of violence? And how are these stories consistent with the God that we see revealed in the person of Jesus Christ? These are vitally important questions, friends. Now, if you haven't gathered, we're jumping into the deep end of the pool here this morning, all right? 
if you haven't been with us this summer, we're in the midst of a series this summer called When God Goes to Starbucks. And we have been addressing some of the most common questions about God and faith and spirituality that we find in our culture today. And you know, during the month of May, we asked you to submit your questions that you have often encountered out in the world talking with people about questions of faith. And one of the questions that came in a number of different ways, but one of the most common questions that we received was, why does God seem so angry and violent in the Old Testament, and yet in the New Testament, we see God a God of grace and love and forgiveness? Is the Bible consistent? Is this the same God? How do we make sense of this? Now, friends, these are crucially important questions. You know, as you remember, as we've been going through this series, we've been talking about really the reason for this series is because God calls us to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. We are called to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, bringing the hope of the gospel to the world. We are to represent God's plans for the world, his goal of salvation for the world to all people. That's our job as Christ's ambassadors. Paul says, as if God himself were making his appeal through us. And so when we go out into the world to represent Jesus Christ, we need to be ready to respond to these difficult questions that may come to us. 1 Peter 3.15, Peter tells us to be ready always with an answer, a reason for anyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have. And you know, friends, when it comes to questions of faith, there are a few more difficult questions than the one we're going to look at here today. Is God Old Testament judgment and wrath, or is he New Testament grace and love? Now, if you recall, during our series, I've argued that there are really three foundational questions that this entire series rests upon. And every theological issue, every question we're addressing rests upon these three core questions. Is there a God? Number two, has God spoken? And if so, number three, will we trust him and will we obey? Friends, those three questions, those are, that's the bottom line on every issue in life. It's the bottom line on every social debate. It's the bottom line on every apologetic question of every theological issue. The bottom line is, if there's a God, and if God has spoken and revealed truth, the only appropriate response for us is to simply trust him and obey. Now, we're not going to, again, spend time looking at those first two premises this morning, the reality of God, the reality that he's spoken. We're going to assume today that those things are true, and I believe the evidence for those first two premises is overwhelming. The existence of God, the fact that God has spoken, that he's revealed himself to us in his word, the Bible, and in the person of Jesus Christ, I believe the evidence for those things is overwhelming. And if those two points are true, then we must ask, will we trust him? Will we obey? And will we trust him and will we obey even when it comes to these very difficult and challenging topics like the one we're exploring this morning? How do we make sense of God's wrath and judgment in light of his grace and love? What can we say about these questions? Now, I'm going to admit to you this morning, uh, this has been an intense week for me uh, as I've been preparing for this sermon because we are dealing with here some challenging things. And I want to be honest with you, I don't claim this morning to have all the answers on these issues. 
What I am going to share with you, friends, are a number of biblical truths rooted in Scripture that have helped me personally to make some sense out of this difficult issue, the reality of God's judgment in light of his grace and love. And so I'm going to share with you some things that have been helpful to me. Uh, I don't claim to be the final word on these difficult questions, but I'm hoping and praying that some of the answers I'm going to share with you might provide some satisfaction, maybe some intellectual satisfaction to these difficult questions. And I'm going to pray that when it comes to maybe our moral or uh, spiritual uneasiness with some of these issues, that we'll trust God and we'll leave those questions into his hands, trusting that he is good, that he is faithful, he is gracious, even when he reveals that he is also holy, righteous, and just. So how can we begin to make sense of some of these difficult passages, those passages that I read in this track from the Student Atheist Association. I want to share with you five truths this morning, five truths that I think can begin to help us understand and provide an answer to these difficult questions. Truth number one this morning is this. God is sovereign over all things. You know, friends, if we don't understand this first and foremost, answering the rest of these questions and challenges is pointless. If we don't understand first and foremost the sovereignty of God, that he rules and reigns over all things, we're never going to be able to answer this difficult question about God's judgment in light of his grace and forgiveness. I want to read a passage of scripture that highlights the sovereignty of God for us this morning. It's a passage we looked at back in week one. It's from the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17. And I want you to read what Paul shares with the people of Athens and Greece as he was sharing the hope of the gospel with them. He starts out talking to these people, these pagan people who didn't know the true God, and he declares to them that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Friends, Paul says that in him, in God, the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe, in him all of us live and move and have our being. Friends, God is in total control of all things. He is sovereign over all. And we, we need to remember, first and foremost, when we deal with these difficult questions of God's judgment that we find in the Bible, number one, we need to remember that it is God who is the author and giver of life. In him we live, move, and have our being. David in Psalm 139 tells us that God has numbered all of our days. God has already ordained and numbered all of our days. He knows the moment you were born, and he knows the very last second, the very last breath you'll breathe. He's numbered all of our days. In the book of Job, chapter 1, 
verses 20 through 22, after God had allowed Satan to completely take away all of Job's family. Job's entire family had been killed. And Job, after those tremendous trials, he declares the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In him we live and move and have our being. Friends, as the sovereign creator of all, God has the right to do whatever he sees fit with his creation. And we must... We need to trust God in his sovereignty. As God tells Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, he says, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. We may not always understand God's actions in this world. We may not even always like them. But at the end of the day, as that song declares, God is God, and we are not. God is God, and we are not. And friends, for that reason alone, he deserves our worship. He deserves our trust, our obedience. Now, the reality is, is this point alone should be enough for us this morning. We trust God in his sovereignty, that God knows that he has a plan, that he has a purpose. But the reality is we still have questions, don't we? And the people that we're going to encounter in our world are going to ask questions. And they're going to wrestle with these difficult questions. And so beyond trusting in the sovereignty of God, what can we say about these difficult passages of God's judgment that we find throughout the Bible, and in particular passages like those in the Old Testament that we read earlier? Well, I think number two we need to recognize this morning, truth number two is this. When it comes to these passages of, of violence and warfare and God's judgment in the Old Testament, friends, it is vitally important that all of these passages fall within a very important context. God had a plan that was backed by his promises. He had a plan backed by his promises. In order to understand these Old Testament passages of God's wrath and judgment upon various peoples, we need to recognize that these stories fit within the context of God's larger story of his plan of salvation for the world. You know, the Bible tells us that this world is not what God originally intended it to be. The Bible describes that we live in a world that is fallen, that's been corrupted, that's been tainted by a spiritual disease called sin. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says that sin has infected all of creation. It's affected all things. It's affected you and me. It's affected us spiritually in that it separates us from our holy creator God. It affects us emotionally. It affects us physically. It affects our relationships with other people. Sin has affected the natural world. It's brought disease. It's brought sickness. It's brought death into the world. Sin has affected all things, the Bible says. And Paul in Romans chapter 8, Paul says that all of creation groans, groans waiting to be liberated from its bondage to this decay, this present age that we find ourselves in, this fallen condition of God's creation tainted and affected and infected with this spiritual disease called sin. But friends, the good news of the Bible the good news of God's entire story is that God had a plan. God had a rescue plan to free us 
from our bondage to this decay, to liberate us. And God made specific promises to us all throughout Scripture. God had made specific promises that he would fulfill in order to bring about his rescue plan of salvation for the world. It's very interesting when you look at some of the promises of God found in the Bible. The very first promise is found in Genesis 3, 14 through 15. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. What's interesting about this promise, this very first gospel promise we find in the Bible was actually a promise that God made to Satan. Right after Satan had deceived Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, bringing about the fall of man, bringing about the entrance of sin into the world, God promised our adversary. God promised Satan that from the seed of the woman, from her offspring, God would raise up one who would crush the serpent's head. God tells the serpent, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. All the way very back in the very beginning, at the original fall of humanity, God promised that he had a plan to conquer our adversary, to destroy the enemy. God then makes promises like Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham, known as the Abrahamic Covenant. And God found this righteous man named Abraham, and he told Abraham, I'm sending you to a new land, the promised land, a land that you do not know, but I am going to give you this land. And not only am I going to give you this land, I'm going to make you into a great nation. From your offspring, you will become a great nation. And out of your offspring, God promises Abraham, the entire world will be blessed. God had a plan to raise up Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel, through which he would ultimately bring the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He made a promise. God made other promises, like 2 Samuel 7, known as the Davidic covenant, the promise to King David. God promised King David that his throne and that his rule would be everlasting. God says, I will establish your throne. And your reign will be everlasting. Friends, God was promising David that from his descendants, from his lineage, God would ultimately bring a king. A king who would be the savior of the world. A king who would rule eternally in righteousness. Who would bring freedom and liberation. The entire Old Testament is filled with these gospel promises by God. And so, friends, when it comes to these Old Testament stories of God's judgment upon nations and people groups, we need to understand this morning that every single one of them was related to God fulfilling his promise to bring about his plan of salvation for the world through the nation of Israel. And, friends, God was not going to let anything or anyone stand in the way or thwart his rescue plan of salvation for the world. All of these stories fit within this greater context of God's plan of salvation for the world. Now, as a side note, this point number two this morning, this is also the reason why these commands to warfare we find in the Old Testament are different from those that we see in the Quran of Islam. Some critics of Christianity argue that the Bible condones violence and warfare every bit as much as the Quran of Islam. But friends, this is a gross misunderstanding. 
See, there's a very real difference between the commands to warfare in the Bible versus those we find in the Quran. The commands we find in the Bible were limited. They were for a very specific time and people. The commands to jihad found in the Quran given by Muhammad were timeless and universal. In the Quran, Muhammad says that the world is divided into two categories, the Dar al-Harb, the house of war, and the Dar al-Islam, the house of Islam. In the Quran, Muhammad says you are either a Muslim or you are at war with Islam. There is no middle ground. See, friends, there's a very real difference between God's commands, his specific, his limited, his direct commands to the people of Israel in their conquest of the promised land versus those given in the Quran. There's no comparison whatsoever. This is why Christians have no biblical justification to participate in violence or warfare. That's not our role in spreading the gospel. These are very different visions of who God is and what he calls his people to. We need to remember, friends, that when we look at the Bible, and in particular these stories in the Old Testament, this is the story of God's people going to God's land to fulfill God's plan. That's what it's all about. God was creating a special nation through which he would bring the Messiah into the world. And as the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, when the fullness of time came, when God had made history fully prepared, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, the Messiah, into the world. Truth number, two, number three this morning in helping to understand these passages. Truth number three is God is gracious, but he's also just. God is gracious, but he's also just. God is a God of grace and love, but he's also a God of justice and judgment. Look at what God himself tells us about who he is in Exodus chapter 34. This is speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Is there a God? Has he spoken? If so, will we trust him? God tells us that he's abounding in love and faithfulness, that he's forgiving, that he's compassionate and gracious. But he also tells us that he is a just judge. He's a holy God who cannot tolerate sin. Both of these things are true about who our God is. I want you to think this morning for a moment, what if God was all grace? You know, what if God was all grace and he just dismissed all of our offenses? Imagine that. All grace dismissing all of our offenses. The rapist, the pedophile, the murderer, the adulterer, the Hitlers of the world, the Stalins of the world, the Paul Potts of the world, the Bin Ladens of the world, just dismisses all of our offenses. 
Where would be the justice, friends? Where would be the vindication? Where would be the recompense? But friends, what if God was all justice? If God was all justice, he would become a legalistic taskmaster. And the reality is none of us would have a chance. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us the good news that God is both a God of grace and at the same time, he's a God of justice. And for that, he's worthy of our praise. Now what's important to understand is when it comes to these various Old Testament stories that we're considering today, in each and every one of them, both of these aspects of God's character are present. In every single episode, we see in each of these God's grace and his judgment. You know, take the conquest of Canaan, the promised land, for example. In Joshua chapters 1 through 12, we find the story of God bringing his people into the promised land. And in numerous stories, God tells people to lay siege to cities like the city of Jericho to completely destroy all the inhabitants. But even in these stories, we see both God's grace and his justice. Remember, friends, judgment itself is the result of sin against a holy God. God is not in the judgment business. He's in the forgiveness business. But God is holy and he will judge sin. And in the stories of the conquest of the Canaanites, what we see here is God using Israel as his instrument of judgment against the sin of the Canaanites. And friends, when it comes to sin, on that account, the Canaanites were clearly guilty. The Canaanites were some of the most wicked and perverse people in the history of the world. Take a look at what God tells the Israelites before entering the promised land. He says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. Friends, God was not arbitrarily deciding to eliminate the Canaanites. He was judging them because of their wickedness and their perversion and their rebellion against him. I mean, these were evil people. These were people who were engaged in various occultic practices. They were engaged in pagan ritualistic prostitution. They were engaged in child sacrifice on a massive scale. Archaeologists, for example, have excavated the city of Carthage, the Phoenician city of Carthage. The Phoenicians were Canaanites. Archaeologists excavating in the city of Carthage have uncovered tens of thousands of charred remains of infants, newborn babies, that were sacrificed to the pagan gods of the Canaanites. Friends, these were evil, perverse people. And so God would ultimately use the nation of Israel as his instrument of judgment against the Canaanites for their wickedness and their sin. But I want you to keep something in mind this morning. God is a gracious God. And his heart is for people 
And his judgment, his judgment was avoidable had the Canaanites simply repented of their sins and turned to him. And they had plenty of opportunity to respond to God's grace. Number one, these people knew God through his general revelation. Remember, we've talked about this already in our series. God has made himself known to all people through what has been made. He's instilled in each of us a longing to know him. He's written his moral law upon our hearts and our consciences. And yet the Canaanites didn't turn to him. The Canaanites had heard of God's mighty deeds for Israel during the Exodus. In the book of Joshua chapter 2, we read the story of the spies going into Jericho and Rahab, who we talked about last week, a God-fearing pagan, shelters the spies and Rahab, this prostitute in Jericho, she says to the spies of Israel, our entire people have heard of the mighty works of your God and what he did bringing you out of Egypt. And our hearts are melting in fear because of your God. The Canaanites knew what God had done for Israel. They even feared the God of Israel. Yet they were unwilling to repent and seek him. And according to Genesis 15, the Bible tells us that the people of Canaan had over 400 years to turn from their wickedness and seek God. God extended grace to the Canaanites for over 400 years, and yet they consistently refused and rejected him. And so finally, through the nation of Israel, God brought judgment upon the Canaanites because of their sin. God is loving and patient, but he will not be taken advantage of. He is loving and compassionate, but he's not an indulgent parent. He will bring justice. But friends, this brings us to probably the issue that troubles people most about these stories that we find in the Old Testament. A couple of instances where God orders the destruction of entire people groups. And we ask the question, skeptics and critics ask the question, what about the children? Why would God order the deaths of innocent children? That's a tough one. I have to admit, it's a hard one for myself to comprehend. But we also have to trust what God has told us. God's word tells us, first and foremost, that even children are not innocent. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even a newborn infant is sinful in the eyes of a holy God. They've inherited the original sin of Adam and Eve from the fall, as all humanity has. David... In Psalm 51, verse 5, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth. Not only at birth, he says, but sinful from the time my mother conceived me. All people are infected with a spiritual disease called sin that separates us from our holy God. Number two, in killing the children, I believe God was protecting them from growing up under the evil influence of their parents' culture and likely becoming practitioners of the very same perverse and wicked pagan religious system. 
and thereby God was sparing them, not only from a life of wickedness, but ultimately from eternal separation from God. See, friends, God looks at all of us from an eternal perspective. And in ordering the killing of these Canaanite children in certain instances, we have to trust that God had a plan and purpose and that ultimately he was sparing them from a life of evil and from eternal separation from him. Number three, by ending their earthly lives as children, God enabled them to have entrance into eternal life in heaven. The Christian tradition has generally held that infants and children who die before reaching an age of accountability, an age where they're able to choose for or against God on their own, that they'll automatically be granted access to heaven by the grace of God. Why do we hold that view? Well, we hold that view because of scriptures like 2 Samuel 12, where David, when his infant son dies, David declares, surely I will be with him again. God had given David peace that his son was in his presence and that David would go and see him once again. In Luke 18, verse 16, Jesus says, Let the little children come to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And so, throughout the history of the church, the church has acknowledged that infants who die without ever having the ability to choose for or against God themselves, because of God's gracious love, will be welcomed into the arms of our Heavenly Father and experience eternal life in heaven. And so, friends, when we talk about the destruction of the Canaanites and God's commands to kill even the infants and the children, while these are hard for us to understand, and while we might wrestle with these, and they, they, they tear at our guts trying to make sense of these stories, we need to trust that God is faithful, that he's gracious, and even in these difficult instances, that God in his grace and love welcomed the littlest of these into his presence. Truth number four on this issue this morning, God's justice is not partial. Friends, God is not biased when it comes to his righteous standards. He judges all people equally and fairly. Now, there have been certain liberal theologians and scholars throughout history who have made the argument that the Israelites simply wrote these divine commands into the Old Testament to provide some kind of divine justification for their conquest of the promised land. These are people who have a very low view of Scripture, that Scripture was just written by human authors. They don't believe that these stories, that these words were the divinely inspired truths of God. The problem with this view is that it defies not only the biblical testimony, but also the historical record. See, friends, while God used Israel as his instrument of judgment against the wickedness and rebellion of the Canaanites, God ultimately judged Israel by those very same standards. God played no favorites with Israel when it came to their sin. Take a look at 2 Kings chapter 17, a summary of God's judgment on the nation of Israel. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves in an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. 
So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. And even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices of Israel that they had introduced. Therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. Friends, when Israel persisted in their sin and rebellion against God, God used other nations as his instrument of judgment against them. And friends, please understand this. God still judges sin in the lives of people today. We're going to talk more about this reality next week, but for now, it's enough for us to recognize that God plays no favorites. He is a holy God. He is gracious. But he will bring judgment upon unrepentant sin. And this reality should compel each of us to examine our hearts and our lives. Are we living in line with God's will? And if not, will we turn back to him in repentance? Lastly this morning, truth number five. In Jesus Christ, God's grace and justice is most clearly displayed. Critics and skeptics often argue that the Bible is contradictory, that it portrays two different views of God between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God is vengeful and wrathful, and yet in the New Testament, Jesus is telling us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to turn the other cheek, that these aren't the same gods. These are two different gods. But friends, again, this is a gross misunderstanding of the nature and character of God as he's revealed it in Scripture. The God we see in the New Testament is the very same God we see in the Old Testament. There is no inconsistency. In Jesus Christ, we see both the grace and the justice of God. Most prominently, we see God's grace and justice in the cross of Calvary, where Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, where Jesus bore God's just judgment for sin on our behalf. Take a look at what the prophet Isaiah declared prophetically about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. At the cross, friends, we see both the grace of God and the justice of God at the same time in the person of Jesus Christ. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Justice, the penalty for sin, must be paid. Grace, as the classic song goes, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. But also remember, friends, Jesus is coming again. And when he does, we'll see God's holiness, his justice, his judgment against sin once and for all when Jesus comes to bring an end to this present age. 
And friends, this final judgment will be the most fearsome experience of God's justice the world has ever seen. It'll make those stories of the conquest of the Canaanites look like an episode of Sesame Street. Jesus is coming again to judge sin and wickedness. Revelation 19, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of the mouth, out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Friends, God's word is clear. Jesus will one day eradicate sin and rebellion completely. And when he does, he's going to judge all people one last time. But the consequences of this judgment will be eternal. Take a look at Revelations 20, 11 through 12 and 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, every single one of us is eventually going to stand before God. The question is, will you stand under his grace or under his judgment? John goes on in Revelations 21. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Friends, Jesus is preparing to take a historic horse ride. And it may be very soon. And when he does, we're all going to face God's righteous judgment. Will you be ready for it? The good news, friends, is that God in his grace has made a way. God in his grace has provided us liberation from our sin. 
in that great passage of Scripture that so many of us know, John 3.16, God promises that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. Friends, have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God's grace is made available to all people. He invites all to come and to receive his grace at the cross of Calvary. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus, friends, there's no more important decision you'll ever make. It has eternal implications. God bids all who will to come. And he will forgive you and he will welcome you. And he will give water without cost from the spring of life to all who are thirsty. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that these are difficult topics when we talk about your judgment. And Lord, it humbles me to even try to explain your ways. Lord Jesus, I pray that all of us today would walk away with a more fuller, more complete vision of who you are. And that it would compel us to live for you and to honor you and to seek you with all of our hearts. We thank you for your grace. And we also thank you for your justice against sin. We are humbled in your presence. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.